All right, you guys. Great to see you guys. Great singing. Uh, Let's pray together and ask the Lord's favor on our time. Father, Lord, we come before you now. We thank you for uh, this wonderful day. Thank you for the beautiful weather. I know, even though it might be short-lived here in Texas, we do thank you that uh, we are here, uh, that you've strengthened us, that you've given us breath uh, to live another day, to be able to sing and proclaim your praises and uh, your excellencies, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, that you have given us uh, your spirit and that you have instructed us in your word. We pray that you would simply uh, uh, just uh, edify our souls today. Uh, pray that you would build us up, that you would cause our, our mind to apprehend uh, your truth, your word. Uh, help us to not only to discern the meaning of Scripture, but above everything, Lord, that we would apply the truth of Scripture to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, let me, I'm going to need all this space. Okay. I like the date, but is that the right date? Is it February 3rd? Wow, man. Talk about the Twilight Zone. We're already into it, huh, guys? Um, Okay, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, uh, here's where we're at. And if you remember what we've been talking about here, uh, we've been talking about this in terms of the the angel's message. So the angelic, what I've called it, angelic theophany. Uh, Not because the angel is God, but because the angel manifests the glory and the word and the message uh, of God, and this is a breaking in of the divine into uh, uh, into the earth, into the world. And in this message, uh, we have seen this is actually the second. Uh, this is the second message, right? The first message had to do with the forerunner, that is John the Baptist. The second message has to do with the Messiah, and we saw a couple things already. We saw first um, the messianic uh, the messianic line. I'll just shorten it up there, and that was because of the reference to David. Uh, 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 David is a big hermeneutical issue, by the way. I mean, just the word David in the New Testament, you've got some serious uh, hermeneutical uh, questions to answer, uh, precisely in terms of, uh, you know, when it talks about David coming and and David's kingdom and, and David's throne and, and all of that, you know you're, not, you're no longer talking about uh, uh, King David of, of of Israel, so that's you know he's dead and gone, right? Uh, actually, in Acts, uh, Acts chapter uh, two, that was Peter's point. Peter's point was David's tomb is with us today. So Psalm sixteen, which is quoted in Acts chapter two, Psalm sixteen can't be talking about David. <laughs> it must be talking about somebody else, namely David's son, David's Lord, Jesus, right? And so we saw the messianic line there because of the reference to David. We also saw what I called covenant. Oh, yeah, that's horrible. Covenant favor. Why? Uh, Well, because Mary is told that the Lord is what? With you. And the Lord being with you, we saw that in the Old Testament, that was code for God's covenant presence. And so God told Abraham, I am with you. God told Joshua, I am with you. God told Moses, I am with you, right? And, and all these key people in redemptive history were given this slogan, I am with you, right? Uh, wherever you go, I will be with you. Joshua, do not be afraid, for behold, I am with you. You see, all these things. So now, here comes the covenant slogan, and it's now applied to this lowly virgin, Mary, it's just incredible, you guys, because what happens is that all of, uh, all of redemptive history is kind of brought to a screeching halt. Uh, you know, uh, one thing about the Old Testament, you guys uh, just think in your minds about what the Old Testament looks like, what it's comprised of. It's all these stories, right? And then you have all these plots, and you have all these subplots, and you have all these subsidiary plots. You, you know, the, the, the story is talking about the kingdom and what's going on, and then off comes a little story about Ruth, right? And then, you know, you have all these, you know, crazy 
prophetic events that are going on, you know, uh, with the Assyrians and, 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 and with the Babylonians. And then you have this little epistle like Lamentations just kind of creeps in there, you see. <laughs> and it kind of takes the reader off to the side for all these little subplots that have something to do with the main plot. But what happens when you arrive at the New Testament is that all those little subplots are gone. There's no more veering off the path, as, as it were. Now we're going to focus in only on one thing. It's like all redemptive history is now focused upon. No, it's no longer a concern about, you know, what are the Romans doing? What are the Medo-Persians doing? What are the Assyrians doing? What are the Babylonians doing? No, all of history now centers upon one person, and that's Jesus, right? I mean, if you get that, uh, you know, that's a big deal. So... Uh, so, uh, the next thing I want to point out to you is in verse, uh, is in verse, um, oh, where is it? Is it 31? Yeah. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, or no, no, and you will conceive, yeah, yeah. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And so, I'm making a big deal out of this, and what I entitled, at least in my notes, is the Covenant Savior King. Now, the concept of kingship here, because he is going to be great, what does it say? Verse 32, he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So there you go. So it's just not enough. You must hyphenate words. Right? It's not enough to have one or two words. You've got to hyphenate them to connect the concepts, to show that these concepts, you know, it's like they organically spill from one to the other. They feed off of each other. They inform each other, okay? So he is the covenant Savior King. Covenant, why? Because, well, that's what the Messiah is. He is God's covenant servant. And uh, the Savior is what I want to focus on today. And so we're making a big deal out of the name Jesus. Big deal. What does the word Jesus mean? Well, the Hebrew, the Hebrew root literally means, uh, let's do this right. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, well, I was supposed to say saves, right? Yahweh saves. So think about that, guys. So here, we're thinking especially in terms of the fact that what you have uh, in the arrival of Jesus is not just the arrival of another descendant of David or another descendant of the woman, going all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. You literally have Emmanuel. Right? What is that? Yeah, that's right. God is with us. And so it's like this is the theophany. Uh, uh, this is like the theophany par excellence. This is like big capital T theophany. In other words, this is like the ultimate theophany, right? This is the actual incarnation of the Son of God who is himself Yahweh and uh, who comes to save his people. Now, this is the subject of our study, the Spirit of Christ. What are we talking about? We're talking about the relationship of the Spirit to the person and work of Christ in the Gospels, mainly in the Gospels, but obviously that leads us all over the place. And so uh, part of what we're doing here is to show, like, what is the Spirit doing, right? Like, what's the, how is the Spirit working? Well, the Spirit is revealing uh, the Messianic line of David. The Spirit is uh, sort of uh, revealing where the covenant favor of God is to be found. And the Spirit is also providing the Savior to come. And so if you... Uh, if you remember our vocab, I'll put vocab, our vocab, we have covenants in the Bible. Uh, some covenants are explicit or some covenants are actually, uh, uh, um, they're actually named in Scripture. Like what covenant? Anyone? Well, what covenant can you think of in Scripture? The Davidic covenant. Any other covenants? A lot of them. Well, that are explicitly said to be covenants in the Bible. The David, Abraham, the Mosaic Covenant. By the way, the Mosaic Covenant in the Scripture, in, in the Bible, is called what? It is called the Law. It's called the Old Covenant. Right? The Old Covenant. Uh, 
Well, covenant of grace is not mentioned in the Bible, so explicitly the new covenant is. So you have all these covenants, right? I got news for you guys. God is a covenant God, and you are a covenant creature. Uh, that, that's the way the universe works. I mean, sorry. You know what I mean? For people that don't like covenant theology, I mean, what are they going to do? <laughs> what are they going to do for all eternity? To twiddle their thumbs, you know what I mean? Like, oh man, we're in a covenant. <laughs> it's like, yeah! You know, the Bible tried telling you that only a million times. You know, uh, <laughs> but we also have what are known as extra biblical covenants, mean covenants that are not explicitly, uh, at least not explicitly defi- uh, 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 spoken or spelled out in Scripture. So one would be the covenant of redemption. This is really important because the covenant of redemption, you guys know what that is. It's the covenant between the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when did this covenant take place? In eternity past, if we can use that language, uh, in eternity, in the eternal realm. And uh, the reason we know that is because Jesus seems to make reference to having a covenant relationship with God even before time was. Okay, And so uh, there's a lot of things like that. But it, it is in this covenant of redemption, I believe that we have this going on, is that just as Jesus agreed to be the Savior, save, Savior, Right. Even as he agreed to be the savior, the spirit agreed to uh, to do many things in conjunction with the savior um, to send the savior to bring the savior into the world. Look at verse thirty five of Luke. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. By the way, I don't know about your translation. Very interesting here, all you uh, Greek geeks. Um, uh, the word child there is not in the Greek text. Right? It's not in the Greek text. This problem kind of upset me about the NASB. I love my NASB. But most of the time when significant words are actually not in the Greek text, the NASB will italicize those words to let you know that's not really in the Greek text. That's a translation that the, uh, that the translators of the NASB or ESV or whatever, they provided that translation for you so that you can kind of make sense out of what the text is saying. Okay, It's literally, what you can uh, translate that is, for that reason, the holy thing or the holy one or the holy isn't that interesting? He shall be called the Son of God. And so, is the Holy Child the right translation? Yes, of course it is. It's a perfectly acceptable translation. Does anybody have something else, by the way? Any translation have anything different there? No? Good. Uniformity. That's right. That's great. Uh, but there, you can see the Spirit, in a sense, bringing the Savior into the world. My focus today, if I ever get around to it, uh, is going to be to show... Um, that the Spirit works in conjunction with Jesus in salvation. And first I want to talk about that the Spirit and Christ work together in terms of the objects and, and, and what else? And the means of salvation. Who are the objects of salvation? Anyone? Anyone? Sinners? Any? So, sinners, are there sinners in hell? Were they redeemed by the Spirit? Apparently not. So, some, you know, some Calvinist in here said the, the, the word. What was it? <laughs> the, the elect, they are beloved. <laughs> That's right. The Greek word is, uh, 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 what is it? Eklektos. There you go. I just impressed you with some Greek. Um, eklektos, very important because that is the Greek term for chosen or elect. Uh, fascinating verse, by the way. Somebody, somebody read it. Revelation chapter 17, verse 17. Somebody read that for me. I'm, I've been immersed, you guys, in eschatology lately. So if it spills over, it's like sermon is kind of symbiotic relationship with Sunday school here. <laughs> Revelation 17, 17. Another good 17, 17 passage is John. 
John 17, 17. What does it say? Thy word is, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth, right? That's a good verse. You better remember that. 17, 17. A lot of verses work like that. You know, 16, 16, 17, 17. And anyway, that's like real Sunday school now. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Oh, no, that's not it. Keep reading, I think. <laughs> and the woman that you saw is that the great city that you no, no. can open up. So I don't think that's it. Just, I like mere, <laughs> it was verse 14. Ah, oh, see? That's why I didn't write it on the board. Okay. Verse 14, say. Yeah. There we go, man. Chosen and faithful. That's who the saints are. And um, and so when the Spirit when the Spirit agrees when the Spirit agrees to play his covenantal role in redemption, i.e. the covenant of redemption, what does he agree to do? Well, he agrees as to the objects and as to the means of redemption itself. Who are the objects of redemption? The elect, right? What is the means of redemption? The cross, right? And so, what's going on there? Now, back to our vocabulary. Russell pointed this out to me last week, and I thought it was really good. Um, he said to me, what did you say? Okay, I'll try to... I'll, <laughs> first, I'll deconstruct you, and then I'll reconstruct what you tried to say. But he said something to me like, what you're doing is you're kind of laying out the, biblic- the, the biblical theological themes, right? that the Spirit, and, and then how the Spirit informs that, right? Which is, you know, he's, he's paying attention. He was, he was wondering when I was going to get to the chase, you know, but I, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. But what I'm saying is this, is that um, the Spirit is, 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 is working uh, to create all these things like what? Uh, like the temple uh, of God, uh, okay? And so here I'm taking uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 6, verse 12, for example, that's a really key text there. Uh, what else is he helping uh, the, uh, the Savior build? Uh, he is building the what? The kingdom. Huh? How about the kingdom? Okay, the kingdom. Uh, he's also going to bring the land of promise. Uh, you need some help with that. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. That's really important. Okay, uh, All of that, here, real quick here, turn, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians um, just to just to see this, I, I was so struck by this. I was so struck by this because I have a lot of these temple passages memorized. And remember, last week we talked a little bit more about the temple. We're not talking about architecture. <laughs> We're not talking about hewing hewing out another stone, right? <laughs> piling them up on top of each other. What does Peter say? First Peter. Uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that we are living stones, right? And we are being built up, right, into a, into a holy temple, right? That's what it says. So that's a different temple. It's a spiritual temple. And look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse, oh, I don't know. Well, I'll just, okay, verse 22, or else I'll get out of, my, I'll get out of hand here. So verse 22 says, In whom, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God. Now, here's the key. Watch this now. In the Spirit. Isn't that remarkable, right? So, what constitutes the end-time corporate ecclesiastical, meaning the church-type temple of God, is the Spirit of God by virtue of our union with Christ, that mystical union that we have with Christ on a spiritual level. It is the dynamic of the Spirit that binds us together, right? So that, in a sense, these living stones can be scattered all over the earth, but in reality, they are actually together. They're actually unified. They are cohesive. They are building the temple precisely as God has wanted to build it all along. This shouldn't surprise us because... Uh, what else does this temp- What else does the, the, the spirit do? Uh, how about this, guys? Really start thinking about this creation and what new creation. 
right? New creation, creation, new creation. I want you to think about the. Uh, I want you to think about the creative, sovereign fiat of God in the creation narrative. What does God say? He says, "Let it be." Right? And what happened? And it was. And after God creates, then He says, after each interval, He says, "It." is good. Why is he saying that? Uh, this is so, I'm setting you up so bad you have no hope here. Chris, why does he say it is good? Yeah. <laughs> That's a safe answer, man. <laughs> that might be the safest answer. I expected more out of you, Chris. There's almost no wrong answer in a sense. Yeah, that's right. You're right. It is good. So it's like exiomatic. Hello, yeah, duh. It is good, right? Yes, sir? Wow. What have you been listening to? What have you been reading? <laughs> Gee, I bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm convinced now that when he says it is good, a lot of commentaries point this out, but they don't make the connection that needs to be made. They point out that this is some sort of assessment. That the spirit, as he's creating, he's the one brooding over the waters, moving creation around, doing, you know, he is a direct agent through which creation, uh, uh, the creation comes. Is Jesus the agent through which creation came? Of course. What does the Colossians say? Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, right? It says everything was made by him and for him, right? Same thing about the Spirit. Everything was made by him and for him. And so when the Spirit creates, and when God says it is good, what I want to tell you is that the reason it is good is this right here, is because the creation, uh, the six-day creation the planet upon which you and I are now standing is good because it, it accurately fits the pattern that it was patterned after. It accurately reflects, if you would, like the new creational reality from which it is patterned. Do I have to draw my triangle again? Right? Right? It's like the heavenly creation. Uh, not creation is not a good word. But let's say the heavenly world the heavenly world, and then you have the six-day creation here that's patterned after this. And so when the, when, the, when, the, when the Bible says it is good, he's saying it's the right pattern. It comports to that. It fits that. How do I know this for certain? How do I know this for certain? Because, brothers and sisters, the historical type of creation, the, 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 the earth, the cosmos that we are now in all throughout Scripture is said to actually, um, to actually be the pattern for things like what? You guys know the temple, right? The tabernacle, the tabernacle. And all of these things, once again, are just types and shadows, Types and shadows of what? Of the true temple. See that? There's a reason why when you went into the tabernacle or into the temple as a priest and you walked in there, you would have all sorts of symbols all around you of creation. Stars that were stitched into the veil of the Holy of Holies representing the galaxy. You had the, the, you know, the, the laver and the basin. You had the altar. Those represented the sea and the earth. All of this typology meant something to the, to the priests, to the peoples. They were walking in there because the tabernacle was like a little microcosm of the cosmos. But we know, according to Scripture, that these things were merely a shadow of something far greater, which is the heavenly. You see, the greater, what is the, we, didn't we look at this last week? You have to keep repeating this in your mind or you'll never get it. You're like, yeah, I know, I don't get it. Yeah, neither did I. 
But it's right there. Um, clear as mud. Uh, let's see here. Oh, Hebrews 9. So what we're saying is this. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through what? No, just 11. That's it. Simple. Making this as easy as possible. You get one verse. What does it say? Somebody read it, please. Yeah, that's right. So all the earthly tabernacles, all the earthly temples were really symbolically representing the heavenly reality, the heavenly economy of God. And, and you know, again, we get back to that concept of is there stuff in heaven? Is there an actual veil in it? Like, is there rings and, and, and poles and things like that in heaven, too? Uh, I would probably venture to say not as much as it is more of the economy of God, the, the things that those earthly things in the spirit world represent. Uh, which are what? I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't wait to go and find out. Uh, but definitely, Christ did not go into a physical. That's the whole point. It's not of this creation. It is a supernal temple that he went into, a supernal uh, holy of holies where he went. In other words, the heavenly realms. And so that's what I'm saying, that the spirit uh, is the spirit of creation and the spirit of new creation. The spirit, when creation was made, it is good because it conforms to the heavenly pattern after which it was fashioned. It's almost like the same thing that you see in Exodus. I think it's, uh, let's, let's, let's uh, compare that with uh, Exodus, uh, I think it's 25 verse 40. Somebody look that up. Remember, that's where Moses was told by God on the mountain, make the tabernacle exactly after the pattern that I tell you, right? And in Hebrews, it says that he had to make it like that because it represented the heavenly realms, you see? And so what I'm saying is that just like the earthly tabernacle is representative of the cosmos, the actual cosmos, heaven and earth, guys, the galaxies, the Milky Way, is actually also just a microcosm of the greater heavenly reality is everybody as lost as possible or you get it now if you say yeah if you say wow that means you get it (laughs) yeah yeah i know okay tell me again Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess in this sense it would be just pure archetypical reality there that he went into. He didn't go. So it's almost like yeah, the heavenly realms that created. Here, I guess here we could have put, you know, um we could have put just the uh, the creation and when this arrives or, you know, in the sense when this is fulfilled, it's only purely heavenly reality into which he goes. And sometimes it works like that. Sometimes you have a three-step program, sometimes you have a two-step program, <laughs> you know, in that sense, yeah. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. Well, the verse you're talking about, or at least the verse that I would use to confirm what you're talking about, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right, uh, verses 4 through 6, where he actually says the, the God who said, let there be light, right, has shown in our hearts, right, to give us the light of the glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the face of Jesus or something like that, right? 2 Corinthians, well, I might as well throw that up there uh, because where would it fit? Oh, I don't know, maybe here. Uh, 2 Cor, uh 4. Four through six, okay. That is a key, absolutely crucial uh, 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 text that relays exactly what you're talking about. That's a huge one because it does bind together the themes of creation and regeneration, which is the new creation. What does uh, what does Paul say in later on in chapter five or seventeen? He says, "You are a new creation." Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I got to read it? 
You going to make me read it? Okay. Because <laughs> I agree with you. It says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, which is a reference back to the creation, fiats of Genesis. He says, um, Is the one who has shown in our hearts. Wow, isn't that amazing? Where does a new creation take place? First, resident in our hearts, within, uh, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the press upon of Jesus, which is either face or presence. In the face of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus. That is where the glory to which the original creation pointed that is where the glory is all found, is in the face of Jesus. It's like, boy. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, sh- that baby's trying to out-preach me right now, so <laughs> I'm close the door on that. Male or female, it depends how much trouble they get in. Uh, yeah, but... Um, Yeah, that's right. Any questions? Any other observations or insights that y'all have to all of this? I think the Lord just wants us to really get this because I think for our church, we've been on these kind of themes. You could chalk it up to, well, the preacher's pet peeve is to preach on this stuff. Well, kind of, because it's almost like I'm finding out that one of the mistakes I made early on in my ministry early on in my Christian walk, is that I, um, uh, I devoted about 10 years too much time to apologetics. Don't panic. What I mean by that is, okay, you know, it's like, I got it. I got the Van Til formula. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, Christianity is a necessary precondition of intelligibility without which you cannot prove anything. Okay, got it. I should have just got that and moved on to theology and spent 10 more years on eschatology. Because for a long time, you know, because this is all eschatology, brothers and sisters. It's not because we're talking about the rapture and the tribulation period, and that make, that qualifies it as eschatology. You're talking about eschatology anytime you're talking about the heavenly things, the heavenly realms, the life to come, the new creation. That's all eschatology. And so I wish I would have spent 10 years more on just the subject of eschatology. Uh, like last night, man, I was getting like recklessly, delinquently, irresponsible with my time uh, because it was so late and I couldn't put the book of Revelation down. I was just reading Revelation. It's just like, this is fascinating. Like, everything's right here. Like, where have I been? It's almost like I let, you know, like the conspiratorial side of the eschatology conversation, you know, the, I don't know how old some of y'all are. Keith knows, the Jack Van Impey's of the world, you know, (laughs) Peter and Paul Alon and the Tim LaHaye's and all that. They kind of sucked the eschatology out of me, you know what I mean? Just like, it became like a charade, like a joke. It became like a, you know, like a thing that only conspiracy theorists study. But really, it's the very glory of God. We're talking about the heavenly things. And, uh, And then it makes sense out of the whole Bible. Then it's like, that's why the... That's why the Spirit is brewing over the, the, the womb of Mary. Because it's like another type of the creation, right? It's like the Spirit is operating over the womb of Mary like it was over the original earth, the original sea. He's, he's, he's uh, sort of uh, protecting. He's sort of guiding. He's superintending until finally the the, the new creator the creation emerges in, in in Christ a new creation emerges you see and that's the whole purpose of that and and yet what do we find you go to a christian bookstore and you get a book on mary what's it about oh it's all about you it's all about how you can you know though you're lowly and depressed and meek and humble god helps those that you know anyway <laughs> we have commercialized uh these types of uh, narratives in a therapeutic fashion and we have undermined the actual theological purpose of Mary. By the way, I tell you what, man, more I study Mary, man, t- she was an astute theologian. Ladies, let that be lesson to you. You read Mary's prayer. That woman knew God and she knew the Bible. She knew theology. 
I mean, just by the, you know, the prayer that she prays, like, wow, like she had a grasp, you know, uh, on what she was talking about. So, uh, yeah, so um, it's all right there. Any other questions? Anything? So, uh, so it's almost like, you know, the spirit comes to help Jesus accomplish all of this. To bring about the end time temple, to usher in the kingdom, to bring people to the promised land, to bring about the new creation beginning in our hearts. That is what the Spirit is helping Jesus to do. How is he going to do that? Because the Spirit in the covenant of redemption has agreed us to the objects and the means of redemption. Of course. Turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 1. Just for example, you all know this text very good. Ephesians chapter 1 is very simple. You know, I've been put in a spot sometimes where I've had to preach unprepared. Like, it's kind of like, hey, brother, you give the word, you know. Like in Mexico, we went to Mexico. They made me do two one-hour apologetics sessions for like 300 people. Totally unprepared, unannounced, like, you ready or not, just go. You know, just like, huh? I haven't taught on apologetics. Anyway, so when that happens to me, if I have a choice, I go to Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 to what? 14, right. Why? Because you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Spirit. What are they doing? The Father is electing. This is, of course, uh, not to exclude each member of the Godhead from each component here. The Son is redeeming. But it accents, in a sense, the main role and the Spirit is, yeah, sealing or, uh, uh, I'm going to put the word applied, but you know what I mean. He is applying. And so, what, what's going on here? Verses 3 all the way down to verse 6. You have the Father, in a sense, sovereignly electing and choosing. Uh, what does he say? What is the language? Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. By the way, uh, you, want a tricky, uh, you want a tricky exegetical challenge, especially you guys in the Greek text. Uh, go through this passage all the way down to verse, uh, uh, verse uh, 12. Go down all the way down to verse 12 and keep your eye on the him, the him, he, whom, him, his. You, you keep your eye on the ball there and you tell me who's who with those pronouns, okay? Be careful you don't turn out to be a modalist. You got to keep your eye on the ball very closely there. Him and whom and him, right? He redeemed him, put us in him and in the beloved. And he did this, right? It's like it toggles back and forth where you can get confused. I was, and uh, I had to call a friend of mine once, a seminary guy, a guy that taught us Greek. I had to uh, call him and say, dude, you need to help me because I'm lost. The autos here, like, I, I don't know who, like, where it switched from Christ to the Father and back and forth. It's Anyway, uh, uh, what does it say here? He chose us uh, in him. That's a key uh, phrase, too. In him is union with Christ, of course, before the foundation of the world. See, Uh, so redemption, brothers and sisters, is a matter of an eternal agreement, an an eternal pact, an eternal sovereign uh, decree. Uh, uh, You know, it's like you get a a point, uh, I guess, in theology where... Uh, you know, we've had people come to our church and try to join our church, and they're not Reformed, they're not Calvinists, just simply because they're not sure, they don't know. And I've had people say, t- you know, are you going to attack, am I going to be attacked at Heritage Group? Like, huh? Like, well, we're not going to attack you. I mean, <laughs> okay, maybe a couple of guys will attack you. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it's like Calvinism is a sense, like an assumption of ours, right? It's like, you get to a point, after you study, you know, for so long, it's like, yeah, Calvinism is kind of like the ABCs of Christianity. It's not really like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we don't sit around and debate each other on Calvinism anymore. You know what I mean? Like, we just kind of know, based on Scripture, God is sovereign. He chooses. He elects. I mean, you're in big trouble if you're not a Calvinist because you have, you have, you have words like this. Uh, by the way, this is the one that moved the needle for me a little bit. I remember my pastor preaching this, an old pastor of mine preached this, and he just kind of glanced over this language of predestination. I thought, hold on a second, man. Like, this, this church is very loving. Actually, it actually kind of like, 
it actually kind of like majors on love, love, love. And I guess great. But we fail to see that here Paul is literally glorying over this. He is not hiding it. You know, I used to say like my old Armenian church used to like hide our Piper books. You know, you don't want people knowing you're reading John Piper, you know, or R.C. Sproul, you know. Like you get in trouble with the pastors, you know. <laughs> but here it's like Paul says, in love he predestined us to adoption. Sounds glorious. It sounds like the Apostle Paul here is rejoicing, exulting, glorying in the predestining work of God, right? And we just take like this and, and we trip it all up and, and we get all, and it's easy to do because philosophically, our mind, okay, he chose some but not others, predestined some, he didn't predestine others. How can that be? I remember a girl came to me once, uh, this is before I was even a pastor, and she came shaking, she had a piece of paper, she had 27 questions that she had for Calvinists, and she's weeping and literally convulsing, and Trisha and I were like, whoa, and she's just like, if you need to answer me these questions, blah, 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 said, because depending on how you answer these questions will depend on whether or not I can say that's my God or not, and, uh, and, and yeah, and I was like, whoa, we have a bigger conversation to have, you know what I mean, it's like... Uh, that ha- that happens to me. I don't know why God puts me in that position, but we recently had that question. I had a sister, Trisha and I, good friend of ours. Uh, we visited her, and there was a gentleman that was interested in her and wanted to um, possibly court her. And uh, she asked Trisha and I if I could go and basically interrogate the poor guy and to just kind of see spiritually where he's at and, and all of that. Well, okay, so he was Arminian. And uh, we got to, and he's such a nice guy, but he's Arminian. We got to a point in the conversation where he said, if that's God, then I don't want anything to do with it. And I said, then you have a much bigger problem <laughs> than debating Calvinism. You have a, you have a, an, a presuppositional problem. You have a, you know, you, you, you have a creator and creature problem, you know. It's almost like if you don't think the thoughts of God after him, you're doomed. And what you're telling me is that, oh, well. Right, uh, that, that's very hard. It's very quickly, guys. It's like you can just be in a in a place where you're undone, and uh, and 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 uh, can anybody identify with this stuff though? Because I could. I remember when I was first challenged with Calvinism. Oh man, I had this very arrogant uh, 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 Calvinist uh, teacher, preacher, theologian, whatever. I told him I wasn't a Calvinist, and he looked at me and he said, "God will forgive you, young man." <laughs> And I was so offended at that. I was just like, what? Like, <laughs> like how can you say that to me, you know? And, and, and uh, of course, now I understand what he's saying. But, but I wouldn't say that to you. But I would just say, well, maybe I would. Because God will forgive us all for our inaccuracy. We all see through a glass dimly. Think about all the theology like 10 years ago that you didn't know. And all the nonsense you were probably spouting out of your mouth. You know what I mean? Like, God have mercy on us. You know what I mean? Like, and yet he forgives us for that. And, uh, uh, but anyway, it's very controversial. But here you have no choice. I mean, you have, uh, you know, you have the work of God, the Father. Uh, how do you know it's the Father? Because, and it's an association of what he does in his Son. So he says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. So this is the problem I had with that, 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 that church episode I was telling you about, is that this is supposed to be celebrated. We're supposed to be praising to the praise. What happened to the praise? You know, we're over here shy and, and quiet and, you know, almost ashamed of the sovereignty of God. I said, no, that cannot be. And then in verse 7, so the father is choosing, electing. The son is redeeming, and there you see it in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. How are we redeemed? Through the blood. And then the Spirit comes in. Uh, I can't get into all of it because I'm running out of time. But then the Spirit comes in in verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel, your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So there you go. Now turn with me in your Bibles to um, a corresponding text out of Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, because the Son is redeeming. And who is he redeeming, and how is he redeeming them? He is redeeming the elect. He is redeeming his people. He is redeeming those whom the Father predestined. This is, uh, you know, when you talk about, like, the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, you're thinking mainly about the doctrine of soteriology, correct? Salvation, right? And you say, well, that's not good soteriology if you have bad, you know, you get this wrong. No, it's even more than that. 
you actually get into a Trinitarian problem. It affects your doctrine of God. Because if you have the Son redeeming those whom the Father did not elect, now you have the Son and the Father at odds as to the objects of redemption. So the Father, in a sense, the Arminian scheme, I've even heard pastors say this, God chose everyone, right? And then, but through free will, you can choose whether or not you want to take advantage of that election, right? Or something, some those formulas, they don't work, okay? They, that can't be, because whoever the, fa- the Father chooses, He chose so that the Son would redeem. And consequently, brothers and sisters, this is uh, really full metal Calvinism right here, because uh, redeem. The language of redemption is really the language of procurement. What does that mean, y'all? Correct. To take possession of or to obtain, right? Yes, to redeem is to purchase something. To procure something is to actually take it to yourself, you see? The reason I say this is because you look at the Old Testament background of this Greek word, redemption, Okay, you look at the Old Testament Hebrew background of that term everywhere where something is redeemed, it is always obtained. It is never redeemed and then left in a sense of you see what I'm saying. It'd be like redeeming a plot of land or redeeming a slave or redeeming, you know, somebody purchasing something or someone and then just leaving it there. It just never fits. Yes, sir. Sure. That's right, sure. He's the deposit, the down payment, the Erebon of God. Uh, Very good. Where where did I say? Hebrews 9? We're almost out of time. How closely does the Spirit apply and work with the redeeming, the redemption of the Son? Hebrews 9, uh, verse 14. Okay, but we're not going to do that. We're going to read from verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, man, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. There's the redemption. He entered the holy place once for all, the heavenly holy place, you guys, having obtained, here we go, eternal redemption. That's interesting. So he bought it, he purchased it, he earned it, he merited it by his perfect life and obedience represented in his blood. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkle on those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, meaning there had a temporary covenant cleansing effect, okay, the old uh, types and shadows, bulls and goats, How much more? That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, you guys. Underline that phrase because that's the whole... What's the book of Hebrews about? That phrase right there. How much more? You see that? Greater, right? How much more will the blood of Christ... Watch this now. Who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God. How will He not cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, okay. So we'll leave it right there. So we have a controversy here that we need to spell out. There are those who would say that there, the Greek uh, word there for spirit, pneuma, uh, can be taken in two ways. It's either a reference to Jesus' human spirit, his own eternal spirit, or it is a reference to the Holy Spirit who is eternal. How do we decide? It's not an easy one. Uh, I've sided with the more a traditional position that it's referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, but uh, those who say that it is Jesus' eternal spirit have a case. Uh, there is some, some strong evidence of that. What, basically what, what they're going to be saying uh, is that th- that is, in a sense, like a parallel uh, to, um, to Jesus and the fact that it says in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 16, uh, that according to the power of an indestructible life, uh, so there they, they would say that the indestructible life of Jesus 
is also a reference to his eternal spirit. Uh, consequently, that verse there in Hebrews 9.14 does not say Holy Spirit. You see that? But those on this side of the room that are arguing that and argue to the other side of the room and say, yeah, but it also does not say his eternal spirit. Right? There is no pronoun of possession there at all. And so it just left there for us to debate. Uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's just left there for us to debate. So what do I believe? Well, let me just read F.F. F. Bruce because he knows better than I do. This is what he says. He says, Behind our author's thinking lies the portrayal of the Isaiah servant of the Lord who yields up his life to God as a guilt offering for many, bearing their sin and, and, and procuring their justification. When this servant is introduced for the first time, God says, I have put my spirit upon him, Isaiah 42.1. It is in the power of the divine spirit, accordingly, that the servant accomplishes every phase of his ministry, including the crowning phase in which he accepts death for the transgression of his people. That's right. So basically what this is saying is that the Spirit of God empowering the Son to lay down His life and to shed His blood, the Son oversaw that, empowered Him to do it, kept Him in that moment of trial, in that moment of temptation. Why, is it, why do I say temptation? Because remember the garden? He sweat as it were great drops of blood. <laughs> you know, the bear the wrath of God is like the Holy Spirit empowered Him to stay there and to bear the wrath of God. Um, that's my position. I hope I sold you on it. Uh, isn't that incredible, though? Even what's more incredible is how fast time flies in here. Yes, sir, please. That's what he said. He says every phase of his ministry. We're going to get to that. I, I think. Am I wrong? No. What else? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. How about his temptation in the wilderness? Don't. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Amen, brother. Sure. He's a pr- yeah, yeah, of course. Everything he does, he does in the spirit, walks in the spirit. He has a spirit of God. Uh, what does it say? With uh, without measure. So he 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 is the. Uh, He's the most spiritual person ever walked the face of the earth. Beautiful. I like it. That's right. He could send the comforter to the paraclete because he himself was comforted by the paraclete. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let's go.